The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad. So this is a sentence that I'm getting tired of saying. I'm upset that I have to say it. I'm angry that I have to say it. And it always sounds basically the same, but with different numbers and different locations. So at least 31 people killed over the weekend in mass shootings in Texas and Ohio. 22 people killed in El Paso after a mass shooting on Saturday. Police said they found an anti-immigrant document supporting white nationalist and racist views, and they said it was belie- they believe it was written by the suspect. And then another nine people killed in a shooting in the Oregon district of Dayton, Ohio, and the suspect in that shooting is dead. And... Like I said, I, I feel like I say things like this all the time, but just kind of plugging in different X, Y, and Z, and it's upsetting. Right? Like yeah, I'm looking I, I'm looking at Brad because I'm at a loss of words because I don't I don't know I, I don't I don't have anything meaningful to say, I don't have anything poignant to say to say it's just Well I think I I mean if I were to say what I'm about to say, it would be the same thing. It would be repetitive. And it would just be filling in the blanks, again, like you mentioned, a different location, a different number. Uh, Similarly, the same reasons attached to it. Similarly, the same uh, background when you look into the suspects. And I think uh, the person that we're going to welcome to the show, Phil Gursky, uh, will be able to, to break things down for us and give us a better understanding of why these things are happening and also why things aren't changing. And with that, we'll welcome the president and CEO for Ellis Threat and risk consultants and also the former strategic, oh my goodness, I cannot speak. I'm too fired up. The former strategic analyst of CSIS. Hi, Phil. How are you? Good morning. How are you? We are well. So, Phil, just just to kind of paint a picture, I'm sure you're hearing Brad's of my frustration. You're reacting to El Paso. Then a shooting happens in Ohio. What is your own initial reaction? Well, to be perfectly honest, it's much the same as you and Brad. It's, oh, my God, not again. And you, you ask yourself, you know, why is this continuing to happen? And why can't it be stopped? And why are these things taking place and what's not being done properly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So even as a, even as a seasoned terrorism analyst like I am, I, you know, I did this job for 30 years, I still have the same questions that you do, although I might have a better understanding as to how the person got there, but I'm still str- struggling with why can't something more effective be done to prevent the next one? And I, and that's the question that's being asked, right? What do we do next? I, I think a lot of the answers are there already. Maybe they're uncomfortable answers. That's the problem. Phil, can you... Before we dig into the nitty-gritty here of who these people are and how they become this way with, with certain channels, whether it's via social media or what have you, can you tell us what this term is that's being thrown around a lot, and that is domestic terrorism? Yeah, you know, Brad, this is something that I, I, I have to find fault with my American friends for. So, you know, I worked alongside the, the FBI for many years and other American intelligence agencies. And I don't really get why they make the distinction they do. So let me give you an analogy here. So here in Canada, we define terrorism under the criminal code as serious violence carried out for ideological, political, or religious reasons. It doesn't matter where it happens. It can happen on the moon as far as we're concerned. If it happens for those reasons, it's terrorism. What's important is what nature of ideology, what nature of religion. What the Americans have done is divided into stuff that happens at home versus stuff that happens abroad, and they treat them very differently, and they have different laws to cover them. And therefore, they have different investigative tools to, to, to deal with this. I think it's the wrong approach. So for them, domestic terrorism is something that does not have an international link. But I have argued that a lot of the terrorist attacks that have taken place in the United States, even those ones by jihadis, Islamist extremists, 
did not have ties abroad. These people were homegrown. They were radicalized in the United States. And they went to like a club in Orlando or, you know, a, uh, a meeting in California and killed people. So to me, the term doesn't make any sense, but that's what the Americans are dealing with. Now, what I find it fascinating is that they're starting to question that term right now. And I ask, are we doing this properly? I would argue no. And, you know, watch this space and see how they go further with this. I think the appropriate follow-up question to that, Phil, is why does the American government always wait to say it is, quote, domestic terrorism? Because, quite frankly, to me, it's, it's a terrorist act at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, I understand it because as government, as intel services, you want to make sure you have some information that points to an actual act of violence that's perpetrated for some kind of ideology. So I'll give you, I'll give you a parallel here, Brad. Remember the shooting on the Danforth a year ago? People thought, oh, Islam is terrorism. It was a Muslim guy with a gun. Turns out it wasn't. He was just a guy with a gun. He had no ideology that, that motivated his attacks. So sometimes you want to keep your powder dry. No like bad analogy there with guns before you proclaim something to be terrorism. But, you know, it's, it's, it's coming, you know, it's coming very clear very quickly that with the posting of a manifesto online, very anti-immigrant, very anti-Hispanic, that this was an ideologically motivated crime, ergo, in Canada, that's an act of terrorism, and it should be called as such. Can we discuss a little bit about the the postings of manifestos on forums like 8chan and stuff like that? How how concerning is it to you to, to know that there are instances and, and subgroups of hatred, essentially? Well, it's very concerning, Morgan. I mean, in my days as thesis, looking at Islamist extremism, we knew the types of magazines and messages that were being posted online. We knew that Canadians were consuming them. They were reading them. We knew that Canadians were being inspired by them. So this is no different. The The challenge is, um, what do you do about it? You can certainly take them down, but it, I'm already seeing in, in a lot of U.S. reporting, and what's been, what, two days after the attacks? I'm seeing a lot of people say, oh, we can't do this because it's freedom of speech. It's First Amendment. So you, 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 you have this, this difficulty in trying to distinguish between what is truly protected speech versus what is hate speech, versus what is inspiration to do something very, very violent. And the Americans, they hold very, very tightly to their First and Second Amendment, as you two probably well know. We don't have the same thing here in Canada. It's much easier to remove this stuff. So the fact that this stuff exists on 8chan, 4chan, Twitter, Telegram, and you name it, whatever platform, is very uh, is of great concern because it, it can, in fact, have an influence on people and can urge them to act in a violent ma- in a violent manner. And I mean, Phil, at the end of the day, if these sites get taken down, they're just going to start up again in a different form. They'll just label them a different name, right? Well, you're absolutely right, Brad. And we've seen this happen all the time, right? Platform A down something that goes to platform B. I mean, it's, it's like whack-a-mole. These messages are not going to disappear. The ideology is not going to go away. The, the people who believe in, the, in using violence to further an ideological or political or religious cause aren't going to disappear tomorrow. Doesn't mean we shouldn't try. We should try to, to minimize the platforms in which they exist. But I, I see the point you're making here is that this is not a, a magic bullet. Oh, again, what a bad analogy for a gun crime. This is not a magic solution to, to, to what's about terrorism and terrorism inspiration. It's still good to, to reduce the number of platforms that have it, but it will not solve the problem for us. Because as you say, it migrates somewhere else. Phil, in your experience, how easy or difficult is it to radicalize someone online if, if there are groups seeking to do so? Uh, you, you asked a great question, Morgan. This is something that I've been kind of fighting against for about 20 years now. 
I don't like the term self-radicalization because it assumes that, you know, me as a, as a guy sitting here in Ottawa in my basement late at night, I can, I can consume material and then walk out next morning and do something very, very, you know, rash and violent. That's not the way it works. Um, in our experience working at CSIS, nobody actually self-radicalizes. You radicalize in a social setting. Right? It could be your friend, it could be your, your, your mother, your father, if you're Omar Cotter, for example, everyone's favorite Canadian terrorist, uh, or it could be you know, some other set of individuals that you're associated with. But the fact is, is that in these forums, it's not just people, they're not passive consumers. They're reading information, they're making comments, they're getting comments responded to, they enter into conversations. It's much more of a back and forth. And it's that process that, that gets you to the point where you pick up a gun or build a bomb. It doesn't happen in a vacuum because we as humans are social animals. We like, we like to deal with other humans. And it's, it's, it's no different for terrorists than it is for the rest of us. So, yes, I mean, the online form does play an important role. But if we remove the online form tomorrow, which, of course, is impossible, radicalization of violence would still occur. And Phil, so in that sense, you're talking about the social aspect of it. When we, when we talk about lone wolf shooters, is that oftentimes not the correct terminology to, to use because they're not alone at all? No, it, it's not. And I, I've also been very critical of the term lone wolf for the very same reason, is that the only accurate part to me about a lone wolf is that they may act, the actual act of terrorism may be carried out um, by themselves, singly. They didn't get there by themselves. Even Anders Breivik, he was a guy in Norway back in 2011, you remember, that killed 76 people. He was he acted alone, but he didn't get to the point where he you know pulled that trigger alone. He was influenced by a huge network of you know, anti-European and anti-immigrant and anti-Islamic, all kinds of anti-people online. So yeah, lone wolf. Unfortunately, lone wolf kind of sounds kind of romantic in a lot of ways, and for that reason alone, we should get rid of the term. Phil, you wrote a blog on far right versus Islamist terrorists. Who is more dangerous? And you're saying that is the wrong question. But I want to throw this into the mix as well. You hear a lot of people after these mass shootings say they were mentally ill. That's dangerous. They play a lot of violent video games. That's dangerous. They're involved in these 8chan forms. That's dangerous. At the end of the day, does it really matter how they're labeled at all? Yes and no. Um, I... I, I, I too feel like, you know, there's a frustration for me that there isn't a one-to-one -one relationship between mental illness and terrorism. That's been proven categorically for the past 20 years. Are some terrorists mentally ill? Yeah, but the vast majority are not. You know, is it all about HN? Yeah, sometimes, but, but it's not. I, I think that the important thing, Brad, is that when you talk about terrorism, you, you try to be as, as scientifically accurate as possible. So you look at the data, you do your analysis, you don't look at just one case, you look at hundreds if not thousands of cases, and you try to draw some commonalities there. This is why we use terms like Islamist extremism or far-right extremism or white supremacist extremism. The terms are important because there are some differences you know, among these various strains of terrorism, but at the end of the day, uh, they're all just terrorists. And again, going back to our earlier point about you know, what the Americans do, I don't find the distinction between domestic and international useful. It, I think it muddies the waters more than anything else. But we got to treat them as terrorists. And if that's the case, we have a criminal code that says if you carry out crimes of this nature, this is what we're going to charge you with. And this is what you're going to be you know, sentenced to jail for. 
Phil, a lot of people are, you know, they're criticizing the Trump government, and I don't want to get into that conversation specifically because, quite frankly, these shootings have been happening through the Obama administration, the Bush administration, the Clinton administration, and so on and so on and so on. Why does this conversation seem to never go anywhere? It happens. There's apologies. They show up in the city. They say, we have condolences for your loved ones and those affected by the shooting. And then, you know, it ends. There's silence and nothing happens. Oh, well, how long do we have, Brad? Um, I agree with you. As much as I'm not a fan of Donald Trump, this is not a Donald Trump phenomenon. Like, he's not helpful in the comments he makes, but Donald Trump didn't pull the, didn't pull the trigger, and the guy, even if he was inspired by Donald Trump, he made a decision to do so. And as you said, it predates Trump. We've had this terrorism going back a long time. Uh, I think the biggest reason why nothing truly is done about this, and by the way, if you're just want to go to a really poignant piece, go to the Onion website. And it has an article yesterday saying, you know, Americans wonder why is this happening in a place where it happens every day and we can't do anything about it. I think it's a really complicated question. Part of it has to do with Second Amendment gun rights. Part of it has to do with First Amendment freedom of speech. Part of it has to do with this notion that somehow, you know, a white guy in a gun in a theater is not as dangerous or as important as a guy wearing a Muslim guy with a gun in the theater. I think that in many ways we are living for good and for bad in a post 9-11 period, and that defined terrorism for many people. And so I think Americans are really struggling with this, this, this and it's not a new phenomenon, right? I mean, Timothy McVeigh killed 150 people way back in, in 1995. This is, this is not new. It, it's just, it's hard for them to, I think, to, to juggle all these balls simultaneously. And then you've got lobby groups, you have the NRA, and you have all kinds of other people out there. So there's a lot of people in the mix, and, and unfortunately, there's no easy answers. Phil, can we talk about the the cost of terrorist propaganda versus the cost of tracking down terrorist propaganda and terrorists? Well, basically, Morgan, terrorist propaganda is free. As long as you have an account and you post something, you, you put it up there, and then it spreads like wildfire. And, you know, the, the problem is in terms of the cost of monitoring it or doing something about it is huge. First of all, you've got to pay people to monitor this information. You have to pay people to take it down. And what the bad guys do is they simply, as we said before, they migrate to another forum. So, in, you know, in the wake of the New Zealand attack back in March, you remember that? There was a manifesto posted online, 85-page manifesto, by the shooter, why he did it. The New Zealand government, within minutes, had the website take the manifesto down. Those minutes were enough for that manifesto to be shared on a gazillion other sites so that it never actually disappeared. In fact, I got a copy of it from somebody because I needed to see what it said. So this is a very expensive um, problem, and it's not one the terrorists have because they're doing it basically cost-free. The, the, the costs are incurred by CSIS and the RCMP and the web developers and those that run the websites. And so they are taking advantage of the fact that, and it's a good thing we have you know, social media. It's a good thing we have the World Wide Web. And this is one of the downsides of having a system that's universal in nature. And it's incumbent upon us to figure out how to deal with it. And frankly, we're not doing a very good job. We're playing whack-a-mole with this stuff, and it's not working. Phil, I, I want to leave you with this. Why doesn't this happen in Canada? Everybody brings that up all the time, not just in Canada, but in, in other countries. I mean, you look at the total over the last however many years you want to look at, the United States is number one, and that's really really unfortunate at the end of the day but they are the poster boy for mass shootings why is it only for the most part happening there yeah another great question i saw an interesting stat just the other day that you know switzerland has universal gun ownership as well like the swiss laws allow you to own own firearms 
you don't have mass shootings in Switzerland like you do in the States. So clearly there's something different. I think, and I'm not a, you know, an expert on, on gun violence, but I would say as an immediate response, part of it is the ubiquity of guns. Part of it is the fact you can essentially own an arsenal in your basement and get access to some real scary stuff like AR-15s and automatic weapons. First of all, you, 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 it's harder to get here in Canada. They, they, they exist, but it's harder. Secondly, I, I just think that a lot has to do with history. It has to do with you know race relations. It has to do with a whole bunch of a, a sort of questions about ethos and, and, and national feelings and, and that kind of thing. Again, it's really, really complicated. We've had them here in Canada. We had the mosque shooting in Quebec City in January 2017, but you're absolutely right. It doesn't happen nearly as often. And let's hope as Canadians that it, does, it continues to not happen very often in this country. And, you know, as a, as a, as a Canadian who has many American friends in, in law enforcement and intelligence, I just hope they figure it out one day because it's not getting any better. It's just going to be getting worse. In a world where we have so many questions and so many feelings about everything happening with the shootings and, and the death and the, the hatred, Phil, we are very happy to have you around to talk us through this. Always a pleasure, guys. Thanks for calling. Thanks. That is the voice of Phil Gursky, president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consultants and former strategic analyst of CSIS.